Well, good morning and uh, happy new year to everyone. We made it, right? It's 2021. We're here. And of course, we can all say what a year about 2020. I wonder if you're the kind of person who has any sort of new year rituals. You know, if you're the kind of person who likes to begin a certain way, maybe you eat a certain type of food or watch the ball drop in Times Square every night or every, every year at that night. Or maybe you're the kind of person who makes a resolution, right? This, of course, being the most popular, the most common ritual that we have over New Year's. If you are worshiping with us online, if you are streaming right now, you can drop in the comments if you make a resolution or not. You can even put what it is if you want to. Here are the 25 most popular resolutions, at least according to lifehack.org. I'm not sure if that's a very uh, reputable site or not, but it's the one I chose. Here we go. I'll go like up to the top one, right? But you probably know what it is. 25 though, adopt a cute pet. Learn a new language, start saving money, get out of debt, start drinking in moderation or quit drinking altogether, spend more time with the people that matter, learn how to dress with style, become tidier, have better sex, find a significant other, read more, watch less TV, give up cigarettes, get more quality sleep, learn to be happier with your life, reduce stress, become more polite, earn more money, become more confident and take some chances, become more active, meet new people, Improve your concentration and mental skills. Stop procrastinating. Start eating healthier food and less food overall. And number one, which you probably can guess, get in shape. Get in shape. I'm not a big resolution guy, but... If I'm honest, whether I share it or not with others, that's probably what I'm hoping for every year. Secretly, beginning the year, I'm going to get in shape this year. This year, I'll feel comfortable going to a pool in the summertime. It's like it's always there under the surface for me. Um, I assume for most of us, very few of us, you know, we're physically how we want to be. Um, and often I think that serves as a sort of tangible, visible reminder that we're not who we want to be emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, relationally either. And while the statistics for resolution keeping are hilariously low, one thing that all of these point to is a sort of hopeful beginning or a hopeful new beginning. We're hopeful that change and growth and goodness are actually possible. We love new beginnings. I think there's something good in that. I don't want to just be 
a naysayer to resolutions. But how will you begin 2021? Are you hopeful this year? Does it feel like a new beginning? Liturgically speaking, we begin 2021 with this hopeful season of epiphany. And this is the series and the season that we'll be in together until Lent, which begins in the middle of February this year. And I've named this series Luminous because I wanted to sort of contrast it or expand it from Advent. Because both are seasons of light, but Advent is sort of these, again, four little candles flickering in the darkness. It's a subtle light of anticipation. And then Epiphany, I wanted to contrast it with like a fluorescent light on the ceiling. It illuminates the whole room. All of a sudden, you can see every little nook and cranny, uh, all the problem areas, but also all the exciting things. You find the coin that you lost. Some of the things that you see under this luminous light are beautiful. They're glorious. Some of the things lead to rejoicing. Sometimes, though, the light is also scary because we're not sure exactly what's going to be revealed about ourselves, and we're not sure how other people or God will receive it. The term epiphany means to show or to make known or to reveal. And in Western churches, it remembers the coming of the wise men bringing gifts to visit the Christ child, right? The three magi, who by doing so, by bringing these gifts, they reveal Jesus to the world as Lord and King. And what's revealed is that Jesus comes to offer salvation to the whole world, not just to the Jewish people. And so there's no one ethnicity in the kingdom of God, right? It's, it's comprehensive to all people groups. And Epiphany, because of that, it's this, this great time to actually think about your neighbors, your friends, your family, those who actually don't know Christ, to, to let them rise to the surface of your mind again. Maybe make a list and begin praying for them by name during this season. Maybe you will actually get to witness the epiphany of Christ to a friend or a family member. And that's uh, some, of, some of the like, clearest glory you get to see is when someone else comes to know the Lord who you've been praying for. Now, the Feast of Epiphany, it's always on January 6th. So it's a few days from now. And there's this one really meaningful and traditional act that, uh, that people do. And you can do it by yourself. You can do it with a family. And essentially, you write in chalk above your front door as a way to uh, physically mark your home as a place where the salvation of Christ has come. And maybe you've seen this or done this before. I think it's especially meaningful during these times when we spend so much more time at home. Right? We need to make our homes into these sort of domestic churches. In fact, more than half of you are probably in your domestic church worshiping right now. But what you mark is you mark uh, CMB, 
in between the years. So 20 is on one side, 21 would be on the other. And in between all of those is little crosses, little tiny crosses. So it'd be 20 cross C cross M cross B cross 21. And the CMB, it stands for the sort of traditional names of the three magi, Casper, Melchior, and Balthazar. But they also abbreviate the Latin phrase Christus Mansionum Benedicat, which means may Christ bless this house. And then the beginning and the ending are the year. So you see sort of visibly represented that Christ's blessing is present in the midst of this year, in, in the middle of it. The crosses, of course, represent Christ. This is a really simple way to remember and be present to the encounters that you have with Jesus in the everyday moments of your home. It's also a sign to anyone who drives or walks past. Either they'll know what this means, they'll say, oh my goodness, Christ is present there, or they'll think, what is this strange chalk written on their door, right? Now, what I like about this, there's nothing magical about me coming and praying if I come and pray and bless your house. You know, you can do this without me completely. But I could come and do it and be outside masked because it's a totally outdoor thing. So if you do want me to come and pray with you, pray and bless your house, we can do that. Just send me an email. So that's the season we're in. That was a long uh, preface, but that's okay. We've talked about the new year, the new season. Now we dive into this new gospel of John. And while the hopefulness of New Year resolutions often fade fast, the beginning of John's gospel is infused with a lingering hopefulness. It remains. The prologue to John's gospel, it begins with truly life-altering good news. It also becomes the prologue to the gospel. So not just a prologue, to John's gospel, but a prologue to the gospel, and a prologue to Epiphany. So all the other stories that we're going to read during Epiphany about Jesus' baptism, about the first disciples following Jesus, about the Magi, or Jesus' first miracles, all the light that they shed is subsumed under the brilliant light of these verses. God becomes human. And I feel like I have to be honest right now. I love these verses so much that I, I, like, I didn't want to study them. It was like when you get a beautiful cake and you like don't want to cut into it at all. That was how it was. I just, I just wanted to read them over and over again and sort of enjoy it. And because of that, I didn't, you know, the sermon is not as polished as it could have been. So I'll just be upfront about that. But it comes truly from love for the text, uh, hopefully more than laziness. But there are two aspects that I, I do want to dive in about the text with us together. And I think they show us the hopefulness of the incarnation. So the first aspect is John's vision of the creative ontology of Jesus. It's a mouthful. And then the second is the holistic salvation that Jesus offers. So first, the creative ontology of Jesus. I'll read verses 1 through 5 again. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the beginning was the Word. I love that. And it would be fun to get into like speech act theory or linguistics or go into the Greek philosophy of the word logos. But at the end of the day, we have to remember that John is first of all a Jew whose imagination would be formed by the Hebrew scriptures. So while it's fun to go into what, what did logos mean in the Greek and um, really what we're dealing with is John's imagination being shaped by the Old Testament, by what the word of God would mean there. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. This gets at the ontology of Jesus, the uniqueness of his being. That's what ontology has to do with, the being of Jesus. All of Jesus' works and words, they flow from the eternal fount of Jesus' eternal existence as the Word. Everything Jesus does is therefore a revelation of who God is. Works as well as words, because everything that Jesus says and does points beyond mere external appearances to who Jesus is. Greater than any one of Jesus' numerous miracles, greater than any one of Jesus' teachings, is the fact of who Jesus is. Being precedes doing. Essence precedes action. Later on in the gospel, we even see that Jesus declares himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. And more important than him raising Lazarus or the young girl from death or from him himself even being resurrected is the fact that Jesus says he is the resurrection and the life. And John gives us this ontology of Jesus right in the prologue of his gospel. It's right in this beginning piece. And he's sort of inviting us to pay attention to the stories of Jesus that he's about to tell because they will reveal what God is like. In the beginning was the word. And in the Hebrew scriptures, God's word is always linked to God's creative action. It's always making something. It's his uh, effective speech or self-expression. We see this in Genesis, right? There's these great parallels in John 1 and Genesis 1. And God said, it's God speaking, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God uniquely has effective speech. It's always effective. 
And John establishes a connection between God's act of creation through his word and his act of providing salvation, which is a sort of recreation through the incarnate word, Jesus. And in the Old Testament, we see that God sends his word to accomplish his purposes. You might be familiar with these beautiful words from Isaiah 55, but I'd love to read them. Verses 10 and 11. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God's speech is effective and creative. It brings something new into the world. And John says Jesus has been the speech of God always in his ontology. His being is one of generative goodness in the world. And so he proclaims, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And I love that Lorene was saying, pay attention as we're reading the creed, because that's even in the creed that we all recited. And then it's again in our text. Jesus, the effective speech of the Father, is the creator. That's what it's saying. Yet, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The creator becomes the created. And this is referred to as the doctrine of the incarnation, which maybe you're very familiar with, maybe you're not. It's been this doctrine that's sort of been under attack throughout the history of the church, and usually not attack on purpose, but just because it's, it almost feels fragile. And so if you think too much in one direction, it can feel like you're attacking that doctrine, too much in the other direction. It can almost feel like you're walking down a tightrope and you have that balance beam, right? And the moment that you're leaning too much this way, you're accentuating the one and diminishing the other, so on. And that's because it's a mystery, right? It's really hard for our minds to fully grasp. How on earth can God become human, remain fully God, and actually be fully human, that's what the doctrine asks, asks us to assent to. And the reason that this doctrine is so important and why the church has fought throughout the ages to defend it is because by it, Christ offers holistic salvation. So as the church was fighting to defend this, they got together in the fourth century and Gregory of Nazianzus, he was the Archbishop of Constantinople, which is now Istanbul. He said, What has not been assumed has not been healed. It is what is united to his divinity that is saved. So, in other words, in order for God to transfigure our broken humanity, it was necessary for him to lay hold of it in all of its brokenness, not to assume some other problem-free humanity instead. 
God had to become fully human. God didn't just come to save our minds or our souls or our words, but the word became flesh. There's a, a sculptor that I like named Lynn Aldrich, and she's in the Los Angeles area, and she makes these really fantastical sculptures, usually out of like, like she'll make something that looks like beautiful coral reef out of household sponges and things like that. Or she'll repurpose pipes um, to kind of create these wave-like huge sculptures. Um, they're really beautiful. You should definitely Google her if you get a chance. I don't have any way to physically show you her work here, but Lynn Aldrich is her name. And she talks about how the doctrine of the incarnation has become pivotal in her understanding of art making and in making her sculptures. And I want to read this quote from her. It's, it's kind of long, but it's really good. She says, Certainly a more intellectually tasteful and politically correct solution would be finally to rid ourselves of these diverse clumps of organic matter in a nirvana of cosmic fluffiness especially in our new era of virtual reality. We sense the embarrassing slowness of the body, its clumsiness and tendency towards inefficiency, quirkiness, and decay, which is probably, this is my own insert, why we make resolutions to try and change it every year. Anyway, she says, it is in the context of experiencing our lives within these less-than-perfect bodies that the most outrageous of Christian affirmations is flaunted. Incarnation declares God in the person of Jesus Christ to be simultaneously the most mysteriously other and the most down-to-earth of human beings. And it is that down-to-earthness that bestows dignity to and declares delight, not just in the body, but in all the matter of the cosmos, contenting God's affirmation of the goodness of what he has made. Our physical realm has an eternal worthiness Somehow it too will be redeemed beyond its already spectacular cellular, atomic, and subatomic construction. It is the antithesis of our culture's predominant view that stuff is just stuff. Christ's down to earthness, I like that saying, as Lynn says, is profoundly hopeful news because it means that all of our down-to-earthness matters to him and that it will be taken up in glory. And this really fills our days with more meaning than we can comprehend. What has not been assumed has not been healed. But the good news is that all of our humanity has been assumed. He has been tempted in every way. Verse 14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. Verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. If you want to know God, look to Christ. If you're wondering where to begin or where to be sustained, look to Christ. The hopefulness of the incarnation is that Christ has come and he shows us God. Thomas Merton says, as a magnifying glass concentrates the rays of the sun into a little burning knot of heat that can set fire to a dry leaf or a piece of paper. So the mystery of Christ in the gospel concentrates the rays of God's light and fire to a point that sets fire to the spirit of man. Through the magnifying glass of his incarnation, he concentrates the rays of his divine truth and love upon us so that we feel the burn. And all mystical experience is communicated to men through the man, Christ. The incarnation, so beautifully displayed to us, in our text today. I love that Thomas Merton says it works like a magnifying glass. So again, if you want to see God, you can look through the person of Christ and it becomes so much more real, so much more present, so much more tangible to you. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This year, may our beginning be as hopeful as John's prologue. May the unextinguishable light of Christ be luminous in our lives, that we may receive the creative goodness and holistic salvation that he offers. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your scriptures. So thankful for those words that will not return void. My prayer, God, is that even in my unpreparedness, even in my own fumbling of words, that your word might be heard. God, and that the creative goodness and holistic salvation that your word offers to us may be received. Lord, I pray that one ancient hope might know the goodness of your son this day, this week, this year. Lord, and that this year would be filled with epiphanies of deeper revelation of his love towards them. God, may we know you more and share that with others. In Jesus' name, amen.